If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up our preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who who we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. One of my uh, pet peeves as I get older is when my grass grows faster than I can cut it. So like if, if it needs to be cut and I have to go out of town and then come back, or, or like, like in this season where it's just raining, uh, when is it not raining? I mean, it's just raining. And so the, the grass goes, and the problem with that is that, so I, I'm too lazy to have a bagger. You know, I just like, I want, you know, just, I have, they say it's a mulcher. I don't know if it actually mulches anything, but you know, they, they, I, I was sold. And so you, so what, if you go over it and it's really tall, it just, the grass is like, if you try to do it all at once, the grass is really uneven and it leaves all these big clumps around. You know what I'm talking about? You got, see, I have a hard life. And so like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's challenging. And so anyway, so, so what I do, the answer to that is I, I will go at it with two paths. So I'll, I'll go at a higher level and then, and then I'll go at it again at, at a lower level. And then it's even, and there's no clumps of grass anywhere, and, 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 and all is good. And so uh, I feel like that's kind of what we're doing with this Acts 6 passage. Like we did it, we, we looked at it last week, and we're, we're taking two paths at this. So like if we just try to do it all at once, my fear is that it, it, we'd have this uneven view of what's really going on and just kind of leave a, you know, a mess around. So we're not doing that. So last week, we, took, we, you know, we, we, we raised the deck up. We took a high view of this, a, a vision perspective, 30,000 feet, kind of looking thing, you know, plain reading of what's going on, lots of numbers, and uh, uh, some prioritization when it comes to being a growing, multiplying church. And so we highlighted the need for discipleship, you know, everybody being discipled, everyone discipling someone else, empowering new leaders. One of the central needs of, of a church is always leaders and, and more of them. And, and so if, if that's true, if we, if we own the church, we'll, we'll want more leaders and we'll make that our prayer. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll get after that. Maintaining flexibility, not getting stuck at doing one thing one way, but really realizing that it's about the mission and then prioritizing the word and prayer. Like of all the things that we do as a church, and there are several things that we do, we got to keep central uh, word and prayer ministry. And you have an opportunity to make prayer central on, again on, Ma- on May 31st to come together and, and say, man, we got to call out on God. We're dependent on him. We need him to do some things that we can't do in our own strength. And I'd love to see you a part of that. And today, okay, I, so last week was a higher view. I want to lower the deck and take another pass at this on what's going on. And uh, to make sure we get a nice, even cut and, and understand what's going on. And as we lower the deck and as we get into some of these details, I just got to warn you, it's going to be a little dicey. Some buttons could get pushed here. And, and I want to ask of you, 
uh, some patience and some objectivity to look at this from a couple different perspectives. Because the temptation for, for some of us anyway is to, is to over-identify with one group. So I want to take it. Can, could I ask you for that? Could, would you be willing to do that for me? Could you do that? Some of you? A few of you? Okay. All right. The other ones just nudge other people. Because there's problem in this community and there's blame being aside and there's hurt and pain. But I think if we can look at this from a couple different angles, we'll be better listeners, we'll be more empathetic, we'll be more gracious, and we'll be more servant-hearted to be a part of the solution that the challenges that we all face together. Because we're in this together, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's go, let's just go to the Bible. Here we go. Acts 6.1. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in numbers, so the church is growing, uh, in the context of that, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected and the daily distribution. And so what's going on here? There's two groups of people. There are the native Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. The native Jews were those who were born in Israel and they were so much more in tune um, with their uh, cultural heritage and roots. They were very in tune uh, at maintaining uh, their just really long cultural history. In fact, many of them would be able to um, date back their lineage and you know, from Moses and David and all these people. That's why when you read uh, the Gospel of Matthew, for example, that's written to the native Jews, like they take a long time going through like this person begat this person. And you're like, what? Well, you know, just get to the Jesus part. Like what is going on here? Well, what's going on there is that that was really important to them. So they were writing to that audience. And, and so that kind of history was really important to them. And then there were the Hellenistic Jews, both theologically Jews. So they were same, same race, but the, but the Hellenistic Jews, because of the exile, mainly through Babylon, they were dispersed all throughout. And they were theologically Jewish, but they kind of, they were, they kind of let go of some of the stuff that made you know, some of their heritage and some of their history. And they began to absorb um, the Greek culture, speaking Greek. And, and, and so they were known as the Hellenistic Jews. And so they, these weren't necessarily different uh, race, uh, races, but they were definitely culturally different, one being more traditional, one being uh, kind of adapting uh, uh, other cultures. And, but, so the, but then the Hellenistic Jews were, were invited back into Jerusalem, and they wanted to wait for the Messiah, just like the native Jews. And so they're all together. And then, you know, Jesus comes on the scene, he, he dies, he, he's risen from the dead, he ascends into heaven, and he, and he gives a commission to the church, and, and uh, on the 50th day, uh, Pentecost breaks out, spirit is born, and spirit is poured out, excuse me, the church is born, and now all of a sudden, just numbers, huge numbers of both native Jews as well as Hellenistic Jews uh, are coming in more native than Hellenistic, but just tons and tons of people, 10,000 to 50,000. We, we kind of looked at that last week. So the, the, the town of the city of Jerusalem is 100,000 people. So anywhere between 10 and 50% of the people. So massive numbers and, and everything is, is great. Um, for, all, for five chapters, everything is good. Everyone is giving to those who have needs, sharing possessions, sharing lives, having favor with God and men, high fives all around. And then chapter six happens. And the numbers begin to overwhelm the leadership structures of the church, and people began to fall through the cracks. And widows among the Hellenistic group were being overlooked and neglected in the daily uh, serving of food, and some old wounds 
began to surface. This is a first-class problem we got here. This is a dangerous situation for a couple of reasons. Number one, the substance of the issue. Uh, people were feeling overlooked, feeling marginalized, outs- feeling like they're outsiders when they should be insiders. They're, you know, again, they're very distinct culturally, uh, some being more progressive, some being uh, more liberal, others being more conservative, different languages, different geographical or- uh, origins. And outside the church, there's lots of history and prejudice and resentment. And this wound, this, this scab of this wound is getting picked at. And some things begin. So you have the substance of the issue, which was an issue that did get addressed. And so I'm going to come back to that. We're going to look at that perspective um, last. But the first thing I want us to take a look at is the process of this complaint. And that's a problem too. In fact, it's hard to see which one's a bigger problem because they're both really big problems. And so I want to look at the process of the claim, which wasn't good. They had, a, they had a legitimate concern, but the process was not good. And we can learn a lot just even from the word complaint. This doesn't mean like, I, ma'am, I have a concern. That's not what this word is. This is a negative word that's often translated grumbling or murmuring, a soul in discontent. In fact, let's kind of take a look at the Greek word, gaguzmas. Isn't that a fun word to say? Gaguzma. In fact, why don't we all say it together on the count of three? One, two, three. Gaguzmas. Yeah. Yeah. So that word means a grudge. It means to have a secret debate. Ever have one of those? I hope not. You know, secret debate. Oh, you know, you know. You know, I kind of, you know, it's, you know it's just, it describes this low, threatening, discontented muttering of a mob who distrust their surroundings and are on the verge of an uprising. That's when that, how that word gets used. It's a group that gathers together to share their struggles. And they begin to get into this feeding frenzy over, you know, I know, I know why we're being overlooked. I knew this would happen. It's only a matter of time. These guys always talk about love, but you know, they're just the same old people and uh, they don't love us. There was an issue. There was a legitimate issue, which we will get to. But instead of going to the leaders or the people who were responsible for the delivery of the food, they developed an emotional life surrounding an assumed knowledge of why this was happening, which translated not into, I have a concern, but complaining, murmuring, begrudging, secret debate, which I know for Americans, it's like, what's the big deal? I mean, it's in our Bill of Rights. It's like a national pastime on social media. Like complaining is like what we're supposed to do. It is a very big deal in the eyes of God. Every reference to grumbling or complaining in the Bible is looked upon as a sin. And there's not degrees, but the Bible is especially aggressive toward it. In fact, the, you know, when you read about uh, the Israelites, when they were in the desert, if you read into, you know, you've got Genesis and Exodus talks about when they, they, were, they came out of, of, of Egypt, they were only meant to be in the wilderness, the desert for 40 days, but they're there 40 years. You don't know why? 
Where's that word at? Gugusmas. That's why they were there. That's why, and, and I'll just sum it up here, Paul, in, in trying to communicate, how can you be a, to the Philippians? How could you be a church of joy? And how could you keep the gospel centered? How, how can you be like Christ? This is how we do it. He says this, do, do all things. You mean like church things? You mean like things that I agree with? Do all things, all of them. Like, well, which ones? All of them. Really, like, you know, are you talking about, you know, like, you know, obviously, like my work, like I can complain there or like, you know, if I have an issue with, with, uh, you know, somebody in government, I could, I could do, I can, you do all things without, Gagusmas, he was right. It's all right. It's a, it's a tough word. I'll, I'll give you that. We live in an incredibly narcissistic, self-indulgent culture. um, I mean, that's well-documented. Rights, preferences, choice, comfort, convenience, consumerism. It's allowed us to achieve lifestyles that used to be only reserved for kings and queens. There's just no other nation and no other time period that comes even close. And yet having everything, we still brood over what we don't have. We are rarely, if ever, satisfied, thus always complaining as a culture. And it is a sin, perhaps of the worst kind. Because all that we have and all that we are comes from above. Like we make plans, but he directs our steps. Our, our, we're, you know, the fact that we are born in America, the fact, if we are born in America, if, we, if the fact that we live in America anyway, um, the fact that, you know, 21st century, you know, intelligence, if you have intelligence, you know, ambition, whatever you have, it all comes from him. And if you have it or if you don't have it, it is all his divine design. So gugusmas, complaining, murmuring, signifies an emotional reaction to the ordained circumstances of your life and the requirements that he has for your conduct. This is a big deal. Where there, it is a cancer, and it is a cancer in my life. You know, because sometimes I'm like, I'll think someone's doing something you shouldn't be doing, and I will feel justified in complaining about it. There's a situation in my life that's not going well. I feel justified in complaining about it. Um, but knowing what the scriptures says, because where there is complaining, there is no gratitude. And where there is no gratitude, there is no worship. And where there is no worship, according to Romans 1, we deny the truth of God and we call him a liar. Not me. I hope not you. That's why we must do Philippians 2.14, not just in church activities, somebody look at it, with your spouse, with your family, in your neighborhood, in your job, all that we can do. And notice too that the, this complaint, so this complaint was not brought to the source, but it arose. It, it just, it kind of 
appeared, the murmuring and the complaining reached such a point that the private gossip sessions have now become public. It was just too good to pass that. I don't know, it hit social media or whatever happened. Like it just, it just arose. It wasn't presented. And in, in a family, in a church, in a life, people are going to make mistakes. People are going to hurt you. Uh, but what the scriptures are so clear on that you must never do, you must never assign motive and you must always, always, always go to the source. So like, for example, like Jesus in Matthew 5, he's, he's giving a few things, he's teaching them. He says, so like if you're ever in a worship service and you know, you're doing your worship thing and then you, then you glance over and you spot someone, you have this emotional response like, ooh, there's an offense there. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. You go directly to the source, right then, right now. You always go to the source. You never talk to somebody else that isn't a part of the problem or the solution. And, and, but, and so this wasn't just not directed um, to the leader specifically or the ones distributing the food, but notice it says the Hebrews. This is, now that this complaint is like to the entire group of people, it's the Hebrews. They're causing all the problem. They're, you know, these millennials, they're just all bad. These young people, these county people, these city people, these rural people, these white people, these black people, these Democrats, these Republicans, the men, the women. A surefire sign that your heart needs some healing is when you take the actions of a few and you assign them to an entire group of people. Even if the person that, even if the, the, the people that hurt you are all from the same group. That residue of hurt is churning into guguzmas. Most of us think if we're right or wrong, it's all that matters. If I'm right, I'm justified. The more right I am and the more wrong you are, the, the louder I can be and the, and the more I can... Man, no, not if you want to be like Christ. And sometimes, also, you know, twisting here, sometimes just because, just because we can brush off a complaint or a critique just because people come to us with a bad attitude. Someone comes to you arrogant, self-serving, mean-spirited, and they give you a critique, it's, it's hard to receive that. But you know something? They could be right. They could be doing it all wrong, but they could be right. It reminds me of David in uh, the old, uh, King David in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 16, 9, then Abashai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my Lord, the king? So there was a guy before this who was cursing the king and causing him trouble and, and complaining about him, throwing rocks and dirt and all kinds of stuff. And he says, let me go and take his head off. This is what we want to do. Somebody, you know, somebody says something that, you know, I want to go take their head off. You know, I'll, take, I'll, I'll take care of them. But the king said, what? What do I have to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because of the Lord, he has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why, uh, why have you done so? Verse um, 13, so David and all his men went on the road while Shemai, this is the guy who's causing the problems, went along the hillside opposite of him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. 
So here's what David's saying. David's saying, I am open to the possibility that God could use this in my life. He's this guy who's like doing it all the wrong way. I mean, he's just being public about this and he's trying to shame David. But David's like, you know what? I'm gonna be open to the possibility that this person could be right. When you have a concern, you can fall into one of these. You guys, like anybody here like charts? I got a chart for you. The chart people assimilate. Um, so this is something I teach the staff because once every five to 10 years, we do get a complaint. Doesn't happen very often, but just in case we got this archived somewhere. This used to be in Latin because it was so long ago, but anyway. So here's what happened. When someone brings a concern, you know, they can have a good point or a bad point. And of course, there's, there's shades of gray in there, but you can have a gooder point or a badder point. Um, so the, those are the, let's look at the, 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 the meat, the substance. When you're hearing somebody's complaint, try to really listen for what they're actually saying. Like try to really listen. And they could come to you with a good process or a bad process. And those things are different too. Some of them come to you and make a good point and they have a good attitude, good process. Everything's great, hunky-dory. Some people can have a good point. Like I said, they can have a bad process. Or some people have, can have a bad point, but man, their heart was so good. And, you know, look for the good. You know, every once in a while, you know, that happens. <laughs> um. But even in that, you can still, you can still encourage someone, man, I, I, I love that you care about the church, that you want to make it better. You can at least say that. How did the, uh, and then so the other thing, so what is, a, what is a bad process? What makes it good or bad? So one is, you know, good point, bad point. But what makes it, well, first of all, is who you tell. So if it was, like these guys didn't go to the source. So you, you, go to the, you go to the person that's always, 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 you always go to the person. You always go to the person. You always, always, always go to the person. Secondly, how you tell your attitude and your, and your position and how you want to tell them, which means in order to be loved, I'm going to make the assumption that we want to love each other. Can I make that assumption? Is that okay? Okay, because my next point won't matter if we don't love each other. Can you give me a convincing, something more convincing? that we, Do we want to love each other? Okay, that, that was... Okay, so we want to love each other, and we want to speak. You know, we want to speak the truth in love. So when we have a concern, we want to speak the truth in love. And I'm assuming, you know, you in other relationships, you want to express love. You don't want to express hate. You want to be like Christ. You love the world. So here's what love tells us to do in First Corinthians 13. This is the quintessential chapter in love. It says, "Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things." Now this doesn't sound right. It, that sounds kind of naive. When you, when you believes all things. Love believes all things. Here, here's what I'm saying. Love believes the best. I'll, I'll say that. Love tries to come up with the most charitable explanation for behavior and then believes it. So here's what happens. This happens in all kinds of interactions and in work interactions, marriage interactions, family interactions, church interactions. Here's what happens. There's going to be a gap between what you expect someone to do and what, and what you experience. There's always going to be a gap, always going to be a gap. And you have a decision. And I want you to know that you do have a decision. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but you have a decision. You have a decision to fill that gap with you can believe the best. I don't know why they're late, but I'm sure they have a good reason. I don't know why they did what they did, but if they were able, if they explain it to me, I am confident it will all make sense. 
You can choose to believe the best or you can assume the worst. They did it again. I knew this would happen. This is what she always does. This is what he always does. I knew this would happen. You know, them, they. Every time, every time, every time, every time there's a gap. I thought this would happen and it didn't happen. You, you can assume the worst or you can believe the best. You have that decision to make every single time. And so to go through this with a good process, you're gonna make that decision because you wanna love people, right? If you wanna love people, you will always, always come up with, you will think really hard, what is the best possible reason they could do this? And you will believe it until they prove otherwise, which they may do that too. So anyway, that's another story. Um, so the apostles, man, they have, they, have a, they have a live one here, right? Because on one hand, you've got, you've got this complaint, which we're going to talk about. So, but then you have, the, you have this group of people that just come, that it arose and it was, they assumed and they, man, and, and what do you, th- do you think they got defensive? How did they respond? You know, like, oh no, you didn't. Like, what, what did they do? Well, they solved the problem. They, had, they said, yeah, that's a problem. They, okay, this may be a bad process, but man, I, we actually think you're right. We want to do something about this problem. And they did. And how they solved the problem is they empowered new leaders and new problems always call for new leaders. And here's why. The issue of people being overlooked is a big problem. It's a big problem. I mean, there are more people who will come through these doors and leave than will stay this year. Just numeric. I mean, just encourage you on like what's going on here. So as I'm encouraging, but it even gets magnified. It gets magnified when people when people are not a part of, the, of a majority group. And there's lots of ways that that can be defined. And that's what's going on here. People were being overlooked because of growing numbers. And there was a, people were being overlooked because they, they were a part of this group that was not the majority. And I, it reminds me, I had this friend in college, I remember having this conversation uh, uh, with this guy, he was left-handed. He was like, man, you right-handed people just don't understand. He's like, you can just go to a dinner party and just sit wherever you want. Like, you know, you don't have to, you don't, you don't have to think about it. You just go and sit. We have to, us left-handers, like we have to like scope the table and so where can I sit not to offend, you know, at least my right-handed brothers, my chicken wing, you know, like what do I have to do? Like, and so they have to sit at the right, right place. And he's like, you know, and like there's, you know, th- Doors, the way doors open and close. I mean, scissors, that's an easy one. It's like easier for, you know, it'd probably be easier for like a newborn giraffe to work these things than me. Like, it's just, this is a really difficult thing. And zippers, all zippers are made for right-handed people. Like every time I put my pants on, it's like I'm doing some hip hop dance, like trying to figure it out. And it's well, and, and, and you know, spiral notebooks, that's, an easy, you know, it's just cruel, you know? It's like, it got all this ink all over my arm. It was just like, I get a right like this. So you... Well, the truth is the majority of people are right, 90% of people are right-handed. But what is it like to be the one out of 10? What's it like to be the one person in the group that doesn't like sports? What's a right winger? A puck? Like what's a puck? 
Maybe it's, maybe it's being the one person who does like sports. Maybe that's what I should have said, because apparently you guys don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> What's it like to be the one person in your group with a college education? What's it like to be the one person in your group that doesn't have a college education? What's it like to be the one person in your group that has tattoos? What's it like to be the one person in your group that doesn't have tattoos? What's it like to be the one person in your group that's 50 in a group of 20-year-olds? What's it like to be the one person who's 20 in a group of 50-year-olds? What's it like to be the one female in a group of men? What's it like to be the one Democrat in a group of Republicans? What's it like to be the one Republican in a group of Democrats? Yeah, you're going, you're going to the group and you, 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 you drive up to the group and like everybody has like, you know, Hillary 2016 on the back of their Bible and you're just like, or, you know, the other way. It's just like, you know, what, do you, what is it like? What's it like to be the one introvert in a group of extroverts? What's it like to be the one extrovert in a group of introverts? You know, if introverts group together, actually. <laughs> you know, people always, you know, like, people always like ask, oh, why is it so dark in here? It's like, I just want the introverts to feel comfortable, like they're the only ones here. <laughs> What's it like to be the one person who struggles with same-sex attraction in a group of people who don't? What's it like to be the one person who doesn't know the inside jokes, who doesn't know the difference between Chronicles and Corinthians, who doesn't know the lingo, who consistently feels like on the outside looking in? You know, if I was to pull everyone in the room, I bet you I could, every single one of you would, would tell me an experience, probably a new one of feeling left out. We all feel that. It's just, it's being human. But what if you're not a part of the majority? Sheer numbers causes people to fall through the cracks. This is true of a church. It's true like in your small group. It takes even more. And for those of us who want to be like Jesus, who like, man, that's, like, that's who I want to live like. He was willing not just to leave the nine for the one, but it says the 99 for the one. He was willing to always be looking for that person on the edge, on the fringe, who isn't like everyone else and consider and strategize on how we can include them. And it takes great intentionality at an individual level because a system may not be set up very well for someone to be included. For example, I mean, our entire church is based upon people who can read. Like you, like words on the, the worship, you know, like when we're worshiping, they're on the screen and, you know, the reading, you know, the, you know, reading now and stuff on here. I mean, Greek words. I mean, come on. It's just like, we've got, it's all based, 32 million Americans don't know how to read. The majority of people at Jubilee Church um, are white. I'm white. My jokes are white. My illustrations are white. I mean, I was even like, I was, I, I realized this going to uh, Kirkwood the next, after, after the nightclub, that this, my headset is for a white person. See that? It's, it's supposed to match my skin. Now I've got a white beard, so it doesn't go, but it's supposed to, ma- if I shaved, it would match my skin. Ellie Sanazero noticed that the way we do J kids, while fantastic on many levels, was challenging for kids with special needs. 
It's a big reason why the majority of parents of kids with special needs just don't go to church. And I can go on and on here, but the point is when you're not a part of the majority, you are at bigger risk of feeling overlooked and falling through the cracks, which is why Jesus told us to pray for more leaders. He's right. He's like, he looks at the harvest and he sees a sea of need and he's like, man, we need more laborers because here's the thing about someone who feels on the outside, someone, and, and he uses the analogy of sheep to help us because sheep aren't those who respond to a general call. Hey, it's time for dinner. Come back here. Sheep don't respond to that. What a shepherd has to do, he has to literally leave the fold. So this isn't, he's not, he's being literal here. He leaves the fold. He goes, finds the sheep. He picks the sheep up and he carries the sheep back into the fold. How can people who don't feel a part of the majority be included? Yeah, you can shift the, you know, the structure around and the system and we'll do, I mean, like to, to, that has to happen at some level, but, at the, but the, real, the real difference maker is somebody's gotta go outside of the circle, the click, to go find that person, pick them up with their arms and bring them back and sit them on their couch, sit them at their dinner table to love them, to, to read with them, to encourage them. Otherwise, it'll never happen. That's why Jesus is like, man, we gotta pray for more leaders. It's why the answer here was more leaders. So, you know, they come to Stephen. It's like, the leaders come to Stephen. It's like, hey, man, we've got, this, we've got this problem, and we have some widows who are overlooked, and that's on us. But do you think you and a group of your, could you gather a group of people who could take care of this for you? Stephen's like, yeah, I got that. He got a towel, put it over his arm, and he waited on tables. And to be the church where everyone feels included, I mean, it's just, you just have to have more leaders. It's, it's true just to be a growing church. But you can be a growing church of one you know, kind of a person and probably systemize that well to reach lots and lots of people, but you'll probably just get one group of people. If we want to be a church of all people, see, we want to help all people know God. It's going to take a lot, a lot of people willing to go outside the fold, get their, roll up their sleeves, pick up that sheep and bring them back. When you have a concern, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if instead of being full of suspicion and assuming the worst, what if you chose to believe the best? What if you went right to the person? That way there's minimal damage to happens to the community? What if when you spotted someone on the outside or someone else came to you and says, hey, I see someone on the outside. Do you think you could go get them? You think that can happen? Because I got these sheep over here. I got to take care of, but you think you, think you could go? You, could you do that? The answer to both of those things is that we need to look to Jesus because 
You see, one of the things it says about Jesus, so we talked about complaining. One of the things it says about Jesus in the Psalms, it says that he, he turns my mourning into dancing. He can, he can turn the, the, the emotional response that you have to your circumstances and the people in your life. He can turn that from mourning, from complaining to murmuring, and he can turn it into joy. The other thing that you can do, he can zap apathy and self-centeredness in your life. And it's hard to see. It's insidious. It's in nooks and crannies and it's not black and white. It's, it's individual and it's, we're all in this journey of maturity. And so you can't objectively, you know, that just gets a heavy environment. We never want to do that. We never want to, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Like, I want people to be motivated by the grace of God and the call of God in their life and who we are together. But here's, here's, here's what I want to put before you. Man, if you want to be a part of a church that includes all kinds of people, then that means we need a lot more leaders. We need a lot more leaders. The other thing, actually, that looking at Jesus will do is it'll, it'll, it'll be just a great unifier. Because on one hand, maturity, maturity is always being on the side of saying, okay, I'm, not gonna, I'm, not, I'm not gonna magnify the differences between you and I. I'm gonna magnify him. And it, so it puts your heart in a good place, but it also puts you in a place because you see like, man, he was in the ultimate circle of comfort. He was, he, you know, he was like, man, he was there. Like he, and he left that. He left all of it. He set it aside and he came to us, and he was willing to be obedient to death on the cross. He was willing to lay down his life for the sheep. There's no way that we could be. I mean, can you imagine a group of people who never ever complains ever about anything? What would be your response if you ever met a group of people like that? <laughs> Suspicion, actually. <laughs> That's how warped we are. You think it might make a difference? Man, what, what is, you see, that's what First Peter says. It says, it says, you need to be prepared to have a response when people ask you about the hope that is in you. Why are you, why are you so joyful and peaceful about your circumstances and how you're being treated? Oh, you want to know about my hope? My hope is him, not my circumstances, not, not all that. He's, man, he's smarter than me and bigger than me, and he's got it all figured out. He's going to work it out for good. I'm okay with whatever comes my way. If your life depends upon you being treated fairly, you just, you don't even, I mean, can I introduce you to Jesus Christ? Because <laughs> he was not treated fairly. We want to be that people. We want to be individuals full of joy, full of peace, robust, not considering our own, but willing to share and give away. And we want to be a community that's just inclusive of all kinds of people. So we have to let go of our appetite, or let, let go of our apathy, apathy, put a towel in our arm and serve and look to him. Because we need a supernatural power. We need a supernatural power to get us past our complaining unto joy. We need a supernatural power to get it past our apathy into love. Let's, let's all stand.
You know, the writer of Hebrews, we, get, we quote this verse a lot, I know, but he talks about things that entangle us, that keep us from running the race that God has for us. And the answer was to look to Jesus. It's not a, I know that can sound like a Christian cliche, but what that means is, and even that word magnify can be a cliche too, that we'll magnify the Lord. Magnify the Lord, looking to Jesus. What does that mean? It means this. It means that when we, our natural disposition is to look to ourselves, it's to get into comparison, it's to look at what we don't have. And what it means to look to Jesus is to stop even thinking about that and to consider him, to consider the way he was and to consider what he's done for us. And when you do that, one of the things that happens, you're like, man, I can't worry about anybody else's problem. I got enough problems of my own. I'm so distant from the way Jesus is that, man, I I want God to do a work in me. So that helps. But you begin, it, it humbles you, fills you with joy because you realize what he's done for you. Fills you with peace, knowing that all everything's going to work out okay in the end, and it and it, it causes you to let go of this life, knowing you know it's fading, you know it's going away. The pe- people in this world are the only thing eternal. So I want to grab a hold of not things that are transient, but I want to grab a hold of what's eternal. I want to grab a hold of people. I'm going to people. I'm going to leverage my life to love others. Because that's what he did. He gave his life for me.